Hello and welcome to the Solo Investor Podcast with me, your host, Alan McGuire. I hope you're well. This episode is part of our feminist month of March, um, celebrating International Women's Day. Um, today with me, I have Sonia Cuesta Mania. She is a researcher from Oxford University. Welcome to Sobre Mesa, Sonia. Hi, how are you doing? Not bad, thanks. Um, so welcome. We're, today we're going to be talking about um, something that a couple of listeners might find a bit gruesome, um, but it's all true. So if you are, are a bit of a sensitive disposition, then uh, you might want to consider reading the description of this uh, podcast before listening. So, Sonia, can you tell us what you're researching or what your project is? Well, my work focuses on the repression of social and sexual minority antisocials. I'll go more into detail about the word antisocial in a bit. Um, during the Francoist dictatorship, during the later years of the Francoist dictatorship, during the 1960s and 1970s, um, and into the first years of um, democracy. Specifically, I'm looking at two particular prisons, the prison of Huelva and the prison of Badajoz, which is where these minorities were sent um, during, at least from 1966 on. So, yeah, a lot of research has gone into the repression of political opponents. Uh, so, you know, the Reds, the Stonemasons, um, and of, uh, during the early Franco period. And then there's this sort of, I think a lot of the time it's referred to as the White Terror. And then there's this sort of popular narrative that the dictatorship sort of loosens up and becomes a bit freer, uh, you know, sort of around 1955 when it joined the UN. And then when they started allowing, you know, bikinis on beaches and they sort of started embracing tourism, uh, there's a lot of, you know, the, I think the popular narrative in Spain, certainly, but also in some history books is that... Um, Spain sort of loosened up and, you know, the, the years of the white terror were behind it. Um, is this, your work sort of challenges this narrative a little bit um, with regards to being more on, concentrating on a specific area. So can, can you tell us a bit about it? Yes, you're absolutely right. So I do believe that the nature of the dictatorship ha did change significantly over time, evolving from I guess an ironclad fascist regime during the 1940s and 1950s to a more open dictablanda, as it's often called, or a soft dictatorship uh -huh. during the 60s and 70s. Um, and I think during the 1950s, there was an attempt as a result of the economic crisis that Spain was facing, um, or Franco Spain was facing. There was an attempt to homogenize the Spanish population under Catholic political and moralizing precepts and moving away from more fascistic or purely fascistic narratives. I think also during this time period, a lot of the political dissent or the political opposition had been subdued. A lot of the revolts going on in, in the matches in the, in the mountains, etc., had been at that point somewhat suffocated. And at this point, uh, the French regime turns its eyes on social uh, minorities especially as this as during this time, um, there is an interest, especially after um, the US and President Truman start accepting Spain um, and normalizing its political and economic relations with it. Um, President Truman also allots, I think it's $62.5 million in aid to Spain during this time period. Wow. Um, after seeing the 
potential geopolitical um, possibilities that Spain offered to them, especially in the, in, during the Cold War. Um, so during this time, Spain becomes an increasingly important link um, in the overall strategy defense of the US against, uh, I guess, its enemies in the Cold War. And they begin creating a relationship with Franco-Spain. As you mentioned, in 1955, the UN approves Spain's membership. Um, but also prior 1953, the Vatican Concordat and the Pact of Madrid um, had allowed to, for relations between the church and, and the US uh, to, to further bond with, with Spain. Um, however, this, this time of Apertura, this time where as Spain becomes um, part of the international community, tourism starts flowing into Spain and becoming one of Spain's main industries, the regime starts becoming attuned to the new threats that openness, this apertura, um, posed to the established moral order. Between 1955 and 1965, nearly 4 million people migrated to Madrid and Barcelona from rural Spain. And by 1975, a fourth of all Spaniards lived away from the place of birth. I think this urbanization definitely challenged Spain's intended image um, of Spain, uh, which promoted rural areas as the country's true heart and soul and portraying, I guess, the city as a corrupting influence. So these ideas of modernization, urbanization, increased mobility um, became almost linked with unwelcome foreign influence um, that was potentially or had the potential of undermining Franco's ideological hold over Spanish society. So during these transformations as well, suddenly foreign newspapers, foreign information and foreigners themselves start arriving in Spain with ideas of, of political and social freedom um, and with them suddenly ideas of, of even sexual diversity. Um, this, I guess, unwittingly contributed to the development of, a new, of new sexual threats to the regime's national Catholic morality. Furthermore, I think urban migration did really create a space for political and sexual minorities from different parts of Spain to come together and realize that, that they could develop identity-based networks and community. Mm. Because at that, up to that point, I think it is undoubtable that sexual minorities, gay men and gay women existed, but they'd often be forced, forced themselves into marriages in order to fit what they were seeing around each other. But as they migrate to bigger cities, they are able to come across other people like them and suddenly find a community. These, this really created a fair amount of fear within the, the government. Um, in fact, in 1952, there was, a there was a study created by the Ministry of Interior called On the State of Morality, which devoted an entire section analyzing the rapid increase of homosexual behavior on a city-to-city -city basis, um, going through the major cities in Spain, trying to analyze what the problems were, I guess. Uh, this, I guess, became, I mean, definitely sexual minorities were far from the only problem that the regime had during this time period. They were definitely not their only enemies. At this time, Spain during the 1960s and 1970s, Spain was experiencing a rise in student and worker militancy and clandestine left-wing groups. Um, the Basque and Catalan nationalist activist groups were coming up. ETA was um, starting full-blown full terrorist activities. Um, so definitely there was a lot worse going on in the country, but the 
deep ideological divisions within the Franco's political elite split between technocrats and phalanges and monarchists and Catholics mm. uh, and the military and security forces resulted really in, in an absence of a decisive response from the regime to the new political enemy. And I believe maybe that the, the regime's incapacity to subdue an increasing threat of political enemies caused it to redirect its attention to actual attainable goals, such as the repression of the socially dangerous enemies that I'm looking into. Mm. They, it's almost like they, they effectively created a link between political and social enemies. Um, advice, at the time, Vice President Carrero Blanco gave a speech equating faggots, as he called them, with unpatriotic elements leading to social strife. So the attempt to maintain some sort of element of control of over Spanish population through the creation was done through the creation of these punitive laws against sexual minorities, um, which perpetuated a degree of violence, which I don't think is very much um, analyzed or looked at during this time period. Um, and I think it's almost equivalent, not fully equivalent, I think that would be wrong to say, but it is it is. It resembles some of the violence that um, political minorities or political dissidents had gone through um, earlier on in the dictatorship. So it, yeah, they 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 sort of. I don't know. It sounds like they've. I'm sorry, that was very well put. They they've basically given the enemy a new face, but it's still the sort of same enemy, or more or less. Like yes, I, I think the the enemy was seen as as this is where the word antisocial comes into play. Um, at, the mo at the time, originally, political dissidents were seen as, as antisocials or, or, or individuals that, that posed a risk to the regime. Whereas at this time period, it's not in inherently political at all, but they are seen as antisocials to the regime because they're opposing to the national Catholic, national traditional status quo. Mm. They, they're, they're, regardless of whether it's political or not, they, 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 I guess they're, they're, they're opposing to the regime, and that op opposition um, is has to be squashed by the by the regime somehow, mm. um, and that's what leads to the creation of laws to repress them. So yeah, how well, that was my next question. Yeah, these you know the Franco regime saw. Uh, so it, it was mainly mainly homosexuals, but I take it there were were, were other people of varying um sexual identities and um such things he saw them as a threat to like his hege hegemonic do dominance like how did how was their response to this with these laws what what was their what was their response to this so they created well there was an original law from <clears throat> the republican time called the vagrancy act and that up to that point the vagrancy act had only really persecuted prostitutes and um, I guess common common recurring criminals, drunkards, people who, who were seen as being in the fringes of society. Mm -hmm. But eventually in 1954, this law was updated to include homosexuals as well. So up to up till 1954, homosexuals were never really persecuted at all. Um, they were not particularly well regarded by the regime, but they weren't seen as criminals. Mm. However, despite this, despite the persecution of, of sexual minorities during after the 1954 law, homosexuality kept on growing within cities, uh, resulting, as I said earlier, from internal migration. Um, and 
I think the the only effect that the state intervention had at the time was to drive, I think, homosexuality underground. And I guess these these networks and these communities became stronger, um, making them even more concerning to the regime. In 1970, the prosecutor's office proceedings claimed it was imperative that the um, that the regime in conjunction with the judiciary eliminated elements that contaminated our robust homeland. Um, the region, which is why a lot of judges at the time asked for the law to be hardened. Um, and this really led to the creation of a new law, which is the law of social danger and rehabilitation. A team of five magistrates, including um, Antonio Sarat del Pamas, um, drafted a new law which criminalized acts of homosexuality and potential danger. So this new law, and I'm going to quote the law here because I think it is fairly relevant. It persecuted those considered as dangerous by the judge or those who present signs of danger and who perform acts of homosexuality and apply corresponding security and rehabilitation um, measures for, to them, excuse me. Um, this persecuted individuals that showed, as I said, just repeating what the law said, signs of danger before the mm -hmm. crime itself had been committed. At this time, the police starts uh, identifying and classifying perilous elements of society. And again, I might be reiterating here, but by prioritizing danger over acts themselves, the law was not really criminalizing homosexuality, but rather the person, um, these sexual, antisocial sexual minorities. Uh, the Really, the law of social danger and rehabilitation enable the regime to persecute and repress men and women perceived as threats to the state um, and identify them with a new enemy. Also, these individuals were to be confined in specialized centers for a period of no less than four months and no more than three years, or it says until danger ceased. Uh, prisoners upon release were also required to declare one's residency uh, and reside in a specific place for a period not exceeding uh, more than five years. They were also forbidden from going back to the place that they had been arrested in for any time between a year and three years. Wow. And the duration of the measure would be fixed with a maximum of, of five years. And finally, they were also obliged to go, forced to go um, and declare that they were still living in that city every 15 days and they had to go to the police station and basically say I'm, I'm still living here i'm still okay i haven't fleed i haven't done anything this was incredibly repressive for people even though this was the case with the initial 1954 law at this point specialized institutions are created and the law is more systematically applied to them and ultimately it wasn't really a mess it was it was just a a very easy way of getting stuck in a loop, um, a legal loop where it was difficult for these individuals to get out of. Once you were in the system, you were stuck in it, basically. And and it could be something like to get into the loop, it could be something as basic as just being accused of being homosexual, um, like not getting caught or, you know, you know, or anything like that, just literally being accused. I, in the piece that you sent me, um, there was talk of children as well. Uh, yeah, 14 year olds. It's it's not great. Yeah, for sure. I think 
it becomes almost as I say, the law was was persecuting the person and not the crime. The idea, the idea of potential danger and a potential crime being committed, which is why a lot of people that were accused of of being homosexual ended up being repressed, even though there was no real um, evidence. As I find a lot of rumor um, was the central evidence that was used in a lot of the cases that I was looking into. Mm. Um, I've some of my interviewees talk about having been. Uh, uh, having been arrested once they were leaving a, a particular bar with a friend not really being doing anything but maybe someone had spoken about them and a neighbor had claimed that he in this particular case that um i interviewed i interviewed someone called antonio Guti, who sadly has now passed away uh, but he was sent to prison when he was walking out of a bar with a friend uh, he hadn't he wasn't holding his hand they weren't engaging in anything particularly they weren't kissing but his neighbors had claimed concern because he, they had seen that he spent a lot of time with male friends around him. Uh, they had never seen them doing anything, but that didn't really matter because that was the potential uh, was at mm. the center of, of, of his danger, I guess. Um, in other cases, like Rosa Martinez, um, who's also sadly passed away recently, um, she was accused of, of homosexuality um, again, not because she was caught, but because she was seen as dangerous by the state by a man who believed she might have been trafficking coffee, which she was. She was getting coffee legally from Portugal and bringing it into Spain. Right. Um, and that was everything that they needed to, to put her into prison. In other right. cases, um, there's cases of 14, 16 year olds that um, confide in a friend and mention that they think that they might be be interested in it or might be gay uh and these friends just share it with other people not really thinking much of it and that leads them to to be in prison usually with younger people that spend not very long in prison some of, a lot of them were released quite early on but others people who were perceived as being um flamboyant in some way or particularly effeminate were seen as being particularly dangerous by the police and they were left into prisons or in reformatories for much longer. Um, but I think, as, as I say, it's not, as, as you were mentioning, it's not a matter of just being caught. I think in cases of, of individuals who were caught or were accused of being gay by people who were arrested, um, show that, again, it wasn't the person, it wasn't, it, sorry, it wasn't a crime, but it was the person. So you'll see cases of, of people who are high up in the Francoist government or have or are friends of the government in some way or another. Um, one of the prisoners that um, that I looked in a prison, I found in the prison record, he mentions uh, having an affair with a the someone who he believes work in the, works in the Bank of Spain. He can't remember his surname. He can't really remember um, details about him, but he knows his name. He knows where he lives. He knows exactly where his residence is. He knows where his holiday vacation residences out of Madrid are. He says, I think he works in the Bank of Spain. Uh, these prison archives and, and records basically write in saying the person that he's referring to is the president of the Banco de España, the Bank of Spain at the time. Um, but just right next to it says, no cursado, do not process. Because they weren't interested in, interested in going against people who were akin to the regime, they were interested in persecuting those who were potential 
destabilizing elements to the regime. Mm. The same happens to priests at the time. So you find in many of the people that are arrested, a lot of the inter interrogations and a lot of the questioning, people will say that the first experiences with, with or in understanding their, their identity, their sexual identity, um, happened at a young age when they were in religious schools and religious boarding schools when priests would seduce them and, and they'd, they'd find themselves through that. Of course, this opens a whole different kind of worms, but um, the, many of them also talk about having a current affairs with priests, uh, famously, or well, not famously, but interestingly, in one of my um, cases that I was looking at, uh, a man talks about having an affair with two priests, uh, often in um, El Retiro in Madrid, uh, and he gives the names of the priests. However, they do some sort of the, the Dirección General de, de um, Seguridad, uh, or the DGS, they do some investigating into this, they discover who these two priests are. Um, one of them is Spanish, they don't really persecute him at all because they, they, he's a priest, nothing's going to happen with that. But however, mm. the second priest is Dominican. And that priest actually does face legal consequences. So definitely, though talking about sexual minorities, this does shed light into bigger trends during this time period um, of, of classism and racism and, mm. and really deep cut issues within Spanish or Francoist society during the 1960s and 1970s. Wow. Yeah, it's like an, an ideological um clash really yeah uh so sonia what about uh women affected by the law yeah so this is something that is particularly interesting because of course the vast majority of people affected were always men um and it is interesting because i guess men were the ones that were more obviously out there men, because of spain's uh, traditional national catholic ideology women would not often go to bars, women not, were not often seen by themselves drinking in the streets. So it was usually men who were commonly out with friends, men who were, it was easier for men really to create a community of, of other men who they found were like them. Yeah. Whereas women, I guess a lot of, a lot of the understanding of, of female homosexuality, lesbians, bisexual women, were really forced into marriage. And if anything, any relationships that did happen were going on behind closed doors. Some of the cases that I do and I have found in the in the archives of women that do end up in prison are only because they, they were engaged in something else that was illegal. Some of the queer women that I found were, were also women who had brothels or were involved in prostitution. Some of them were trafficking drugs and trafficking coffee, as I mentioned earlier. And it's only through the secondary crime that is seen as is in itself uh, quite punishable that they discover that these women are, are gay themselves. Uh, but other women are very can easily I don't want to say easily, but it is to an extent they can they can live a, a life of of um, they can live their life as being queer women within their own homes because it was still fairly acceptable to see women living with women during this time period in Spain. Right. It, oftentimes we'll see women that were unmarried that lived together because they were religious or for any other reason and it's impossible to know 
how many cases of, of two unmarried women living together during this time period were actually in a relationship mm. because again these stories were not as persecuted but of course it is undeniable that there were hundreds of cases not thousands of cases of women at this time period who were um, also queer but they just don't end up in prisons as consistently and systematically as men do. Wow. Um, you talk a lot about uh, Badakhov and Kholba in your the prisons there. Why are they why are they so important to your research? Yeah, so they're they are a fascinating case. Um, maybe fascinating is it is fascinating, it's not great. Mm. Um, they are they are central to the story. So um, they these prisons were already standing beforehand, but from 1966 they begin they or they start being used specifically to house um, sexual minorities and, and queer minorities. Uh, once people were arrested, they would be sent to the observation centers. Oftentimes it's referred to the Central Observation Center in Caroline City, where they'd be looked at by doctors and psychiatrists. And then they, these psychiatrists would determine whether they were actives or passives in terms of sexual identity. Depending on what they were, they were split into two different prisons. Uh, Balajot was a prison for actives and Huelva was a prison for passives. And those who would be the epitome of perversion as is put by, by the regime uh, would switch, would also be sent to Balajot as passives. Before Huelva and Balajot, there was an agricultural colony in Tefia and the Canary Islands. Um, it's called an agricultural colony, but in reality it was a concentration camp wow. where hundreds of, of um, queer prisoners were sent from 1954, I'm sorry, excuse me, from 1956 till 1966. Um, the conditions in this, in this colony have, were terrifying. Uh, individuals were worked, uh, forced to work for hours. They were brought into the colony with their eyes closed so they wouldn't be able to see where they were going so they wouldn't be able to escape not that they could anyways because they were in the middle of an island uh the, the conditions there were already horrible however as these two prisons come up and the colonial Tefia is shut uh there's suddenly lore created around these prisons which is something that can we can elucidate and find more about in some of the archives so uh, I have a letter from uh, a prisoner who had been in and out of prison, usually in Madrid, uh, for him being a homosexual. Uh, however, this letter is from his third time going to prison, um, and the letter reads to the judge, I beg you have mercy on my, for my soul, as so far my life has been nothing but a test. I was born in 1928, the year my mother killed herself. I never really got to meet her. To support my family, I began working at the age of 12 in a camera mechanic shop. As I went back home one evening at the start of the war, I discovered my dad had been taken away due to his political opinions. We, have, we found his lifeless body in November 1936 on the highway in I have been in, in and out of prison several times due to this defect I was punished with. I have looked for help from friends, but no one wants to do any, have anything to do with me. And I understand them. I've been put up with a lot in my life. I could get angry at society and hold it accountable for the time I lived rough as a child because no one took pity on me, but I would never do that. So the only thing I beg of you is to please help me. 
I have been told I'm being transferred to Badajoz, and I have heard terrible things about that place. I've seen what it does to people. For the grace of God, I beg you to please allow me to stay in Carabanchel. I will do my time and make sure to redirect my life once I'm out. Wow. So this has a particularly horrifying story because, again, he gets sent to Badajoz, gets out of Badajoz, gets sent again to Badajoz after this. Um, and at the start of every prisoner's time in prison, they would be studied by doctors to make sure whether they were um, capable or yeah, they could be, they could, uh, I guess they were in the right physical conditions to be able to work in certain um, right. labor that were going on these prisons. Um, and it's always interesting to see because these individuals that were in and out of prison constantly would oftentimes, you, you see how they, they see their health worsens over time. Mm. In this particular prisoner, the first time he gets into uh, Badajoz, there's not much information on him. Everything seems to be okay. Even though he's been in prison before, he's he seems to be healthy, fit, strong, and able to work. The second time he ends up in uh, Badajoz again because he breaks these, um, he's, I guess, provisional freedom, so he doesn't really report to the judge, so he ends up in prison again and gets sent to Badajoz again because they already know him there. There is note that he shows signs of, of injuries on his temples and on his feet. This very much points at the fact that electroshock therapy was going on in these prisons to try and recon reconduct and, re and drive, I guess, individuals back to what is perceived as, as their, what they should be. They're trying to normalize and inverted commas these these individuals. Um, eventually, the second, the next time that he goes into Badajoz, we see another um, medical statement saying that um, he seems alright. However, he, he is not really capable of doing a lot of work because there are unhealed um, scars on his groin area, um, hinting well, not even hinting. It just says he he seen, he shows signs of having been castrated. Wow. It doesn't put the blame on the prison, it, it, but it, it doesn't really say who did it. But it seems really clear that something happened during um, his last day in Badajoz where he had been castrated, not very effectively, not in very clean conditions because he was having an infection. Um, at that point, he stops being sent to uh, an area working with woods in Badajoz and he starts working, making um, footballs, basically which was a less uh, intense job to do. But of course, medical treatments were very common. Most recently, um, I found out that people were being uh, chemically castrated with Androca, um, which is a, uh, it's a chemical castrator, until the 1980s, Jesus. which is incredibly late uh, for all of this. And of course, you do find cases as well, people who were undergoing even lobotomic studies um, something that is written in some of the um, documents from this time period, which hints at potential lobotomies happening uh, during this time period. This is something that is very much discussed by some of the psychiatrists at the time. Juan José López Ibor was um, a psychiatrist that really does did, um, I guess, he spoke very well about the, the positive effects of, of lobotomies even until the mid 1970s in, in multiple medical congresses around Europe. So and the conditions were rather concerning. And this is just the medical side, but prisoners were also subject to beatings and women were at times 
very commonly um, affected by sexual assault in prisons by security guards and prison guards. Mm -hmm. um, one of my interviews I mentioned earlier, Rosa Martinez mentioned that they that when she was being sexually assaulted in prison, um, other guards were laughing and saying that it, she that they would fix her that uh, it would it, she had never really been with a real man before, which is why she was deviated or queer, um, but that she was easily fixed in in this sort of way. Wow. Um, it's incredibly disturbing, and this is something that people went or endured until really until 1978, 79. Wow! And you interviewed quite a few, uh, not only prisoners but prison officers. What was the experience of or your experience, and, and what did you find it interviewing these people? Well, it's it is it's hard to say. Um, the of course, prison workers and prison guards were not very comfortable being interviewed. Um, most recently, I interviewed someone who was working in Huelva and he he really, very for a long time, he just wanted to give me a statement. He, didn't, he wanted a written statement that he could think out and he didn't really want to speak about anything. But then eventually I managed to interview him. And he, of course, denied any form of violence going on in these prisons. And I think there is there is some truth to it. I. I do think from other prisoners as well that were in these in these prisons, it was a very complex society that was being carved in these places, because of course there was a lot of violence going on, but as well, they a lot of prisoners managed to to create a community for themselves. Some prison guards were definitely incredibly abusive, but others did try and help in any way in shape they could. Um, there is a case of a prison guard in the prison of Huelva who was smuggling in makeup for the trans section of the population that was living there. So that's something else that is important that is, isn't really obvious in the archives. From my interviews with prisoners, it, it, it's said that around 5,000 people went in and out of these prisons throughout um, the Franco dictatorship. However, it's unclear how many of these people were only gay men or gay women, and how many of these people were actually trans people who didn't have the the vocabulary to actually or the I guess yeah the terminology to be able to identify themselves as this um, a lot of the trans women that I've interviewed recently talk about how they only really discovered this eventually in, in the 1970s wow. however there does seem to be a degree of community in these places with some prison guards bringing makeup uh, in Huelva as well um, there is a a rather heartwarming case between um, the the prison um, priest and the prison doctor. The prison doctor goes to the main, um, the general direction of, of uh, prisons in Spain and complains about the priest because the priest is bringing in ma magazines and food for the prisoners and he shouldn't be doing that. And the priest in these court documents says, well, I have to because the conditions are not great and you're not really supporting them. It's the least I can do. So there is, there are elements of, of of people working in these prisons who do want to help out, who do do want to, you know, make make this, the, their circumstances as as good as as they can. Whereas on the other side, you do find prison workers who are incredibly violent. Uh, in some of these cases, they're even violent in their houses. So there is a very interesting case of um, a prison guard from Badajoz who had weirdly enough been involved in so many uh, issues with the law 
1962, he had uh, gone to court because he had gotten drunk with another prison guard, gone back to his house and demanded his wife make him coffee at two in the morning. She says it's too late and we don't have any coffee. He gets violent and shoots his gun in, this, in, in their apartment, uh, making a hole in the neighbor the, above's floor and his own ceiling. Um, however, this prison guard isn't really released from his prison duties and he keeps on working in the same prison. So there is, there is a large element of corruption and, and I guess quite unsavory elements in these prison guards. It also seems to be the case that there is, there is a tendency within the government and within the prison administration in Madrid to send prison guards working within similar prisons. So prison, prison guards from Badajoz would be sent to Huelva, the ones in Huelva to Badajoz. But it was rare that prison guards from prisons in Madrid or prisons in other bits of Spain were to be sent to these places because they weren't really prepared to do anything or to deal with these uh, these sorts of, of prisoners. Um, and it is rather telling that there is multiple uh, cases during the, throughout the years um, of people that are sent from other prisons to work in Huelva and Badajoz um, that eventually step down only a few months after going in to work into these prisons. And some of those cases end up in suicides. Wow. We don't really know what they saw, but we do know that Clearly, the conditions were rough, mm. um, but as I say, within within this this dark side, there is always an element of humanity, an element of of trying to to survive, both on the prisoner side and on the prison worker side. But of course, it's it's hard to to say. Yeah, and uh, an interesting thing was that it continued after Franco died. So after nineteen seventy five, can you tell us a bit about that? Yes, so I think oftentimes we forget that the 1977 law of amnesty didn't really change things really for everyone because of course um, the law of amnesty spared political prisoners from prison records and permitted those old political dissidents who were in exile to return to Spain, but of course guaranteed impunity for those who had participated in war crimes in Spain. Um, this, again, only applied to political prisoners and political crimes, whereas these prisoners were not political, they were social prisoners. Um, so, of course, during this time period, they're left in these prisons still, almost forgotten during a time where Spain is, is becoming a little, is, is trying to attain democracy, it's, it's going through a transitional period, period of, of, of settling in. Um, and it's almost like they're, they become a, a second thought, an afterthought, and they're just left behind. Uh, of course, there is some support there. Other sexual minorities in Spain at the time get together and start denouncing what's going on in these prisons. Right. In fact, the first Pride in Spain takes place in 1977 in Barcelona with a small group of transgender women. And I say transgender, uh, but they like to call themselves transsexual. This is a big debate within uh, older yeah. generations of trans women in Spain. Uh, but they they get together and they really denounce what's going on in these prisons. Um, famously as well, they they talk about walking through Las Ramblas with their placards, being at the front as well, because 
gay men and gay women were too terrified of their images being put out, whereas trans women had nothing to lose at this point. And even as the police starts repressing the, and, and shutting the, the demonstration down, as, as trans women are being beat, beaten up in the streets, um, they keep on walking their, their shoes and their bags and their, and their makeup everywhere on the floor. They keep on standing strong because they really believe that this law has to be rescinded. And in fact, it isn't really until December 1978 that the, a whole week after the constitution is published that the law is rescinded. Um, and it's surprising as well, because I think it wasn't just what was going on on the outside, but as well how at this time when, when the prisoners, I'm, I've skipped a whole section, but I'll get to it. Um, there is there is not much change within these prisons. One of my interviewees, a trans woman called Silvia Reyes, who was in, ba in Badajoz, talks about how when Franco dies, uh, people are celebrating in, in Badajoz, people are getting together, they're dancing, they're singing, and other gay men ask her, but aren't you aren't you happy? Why are you, why aren't you celebrating? And she goes, well, we're still here, aren't we? Nothing has changed. He might have died, that little small bold man, but we're still stuck in this prison. And it's true, it takes them um, seeing that nothing is gonna change during this time period for them to actually start becoming a little bit more politically motivated and a bit more political, politically radicalized. They join what's called La Copel or the Coordinadora de Presos Españoles en Lucha, the, the organization of, of Spanish prisoners in arms, where along with other um, sorry, social uh, prisoners, they start organizing revolts uh, many of them start self-harming in prison, swallowing lead, just to be able to be taken out of prison for a short period of time and sent to hospitals where they'd be able to tell their stories to nurses and doctors and whoever would be able to hear them. Other, other people at this point, other prisoners go on hunger strikes, which become really common with people not eating for weeks. Uh, this becomes quite, quite an intense movement and it culminates with in the case of Huelva, several, there are two instances where um, prison guards are kidnapped, once in 1976 and once in 1978, but within these prisons themselves. So what they'll do is towards the end of the day when there's less security, some prisoners would get together, throw prison, prison workers inside a cell, lock them in, and then try and arrange what they can do. Some of them manage to escape, but they eventually always walk back to prison. But eventually the one case that is particularly interesting is um, in August 1977, the prisoners in Badajoz set fire to the prison, um, then climb on the rooftop uh, with huge signs um, asking for freedom. Uh, and it's at this point where the, the I guess that their state and their situation is so glaringly obvious, the, the government can't do anything but to reform this law and rescind it in 1978. Um, of course, it's it's an incredibly complicated history because they their prison records, however, and I think um, this is something that we can discuss a little bit further in a bit. But the prison records weren't really deleted until two thousand and four, which yeah. is incredibly late. So even though political prisoners had been able to go out and find jobs after the law of amnesty, whenever they were applying to jobs they had a criminal record weighing on the back which affected their job opportunities affected the possibility of actually escaping a life of 
marginalization that they were forced into by the by the Francoist government, which is incredibly sad. Not only that, but even though the law was rescinded in 1977, uh, a law of um, against the scandalo publica was put in place, uh, and that law was instated in, in until 1984. This meant that even though people were not being sent to prison, if individuals were to show behavior that went against, I guess, common morality, this included trans women wearing makeup in the street while, while presenting um, not particularly as women or uh, men being flamboyant in the streets, they could be sent to prison overnight or for, for a few nights. And this just, I guess, they're, they're, they're I guess, the, 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 the kind of it was the repression that they experienced was not as bad as earlier on, but they were still very much affected by the set of laws um, in place during democracy. Wow. Has there ever been any sort of justice for the people that were, you know, victims under the Franco regime or, or under early democracy? Well, there has been to an extent. So the prisons of Badajoz and Huelva that were used as prisons at the time. The prison in Badajoz is now used as a museum of contemporary art, and the one in Huelva has been shut. Um, however, and plaques have been put in place to commemorate everyone who had suffered under under the laws. Of course, I've found prison workers who tell me that's nonsense. They talk about violence in these places, but nothing ever happened. So divisions, ideological divisions continue. And I think prison workers still very much deny any issue going on in these prisons. However, the government did try and instate a compensation of 4,000 euros for anyone who had suffered uh, violence under the law of social danger and rehabilitation and the Vagrancy Act. However, the, the compensation is not very easy to get. It requires a lot of paperwork, a lot of information that a lot of these prisoners don't have. Mm. Um, there have been a number of um, associations that are created by ex-prisoners, like the um, Association of Ex-Social Prisoners, uh, who have helped out to an extent, but of course the, the issue is there's only so many resources that people can go through to try and get compensation. Um, and on the other hand, the, I guess what is really a compensation when, when you have suffered for years and and really yeah. it's not only the time in prison but it's a time once you're released from prison where you're forced not to be able to integrate into society because of your criminal record four thousand mm. euros doesn't mean very much to be completely honest no um, so it's like it is, the compensation you would get for a car crash or something exactly and, not really uh, and it's a shame as well because a lot of these people uh, there is, there are groups, of course, of, of um, homosexual men and women uh, who have gone together after after the, the law was rescinded and created associations. But what I've really found is that a lot of the people who went through this through the prison system, who were affected by the law, never really joined their a community of of um, I guess like-minded queer people who had suffered because they just they they'd rather not think about it, they'd rather not discuss it. So I guess that sense of alienation, I guess, continues within them throughout this entire time period up to this day, which is such a shame because it's it's really forced, somehow it's perpetuated what the Franco's regime wanted, which is to keep them quiet and silent. 
Um, and this is something that has continued to this day, which is, it's incredibly sad to hear these stories, really. Mm -hmm. Thank you very much, Sonia. Thank you.